You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Roland Kays is a zoologist with a broad interest in ecology and conservation, especially of mammals. He studies research questions that are scientifically interesting, but also have real-world relevance through educational or conservation value. An expert in using new technologies to study free-ranging animals, especially to track their movement with GPS tags and camera traps, Kays is a prolific producer of wildlife education and tracking content on his site, RolandKays.com. He was featured on National Geographic's World's Weirdest and has been a regular expert on shows on the Science Channel. Roland, thank you so much for being on Rewilding Earth. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I am fascinated by your work. You mentioned in one of your videos, one of your very, very many videos, uh, that you are aware that you have the coolest job in the world. And I just want to reiterate that fact. You have my job. Somehow you got my job. Well, thanks. I feel lucky to be able to get out in the woods and, and uh, chase animals and do science and then try to connect with, uh, with people about that as well. What makes you who you are? I mean, were you doing this when you were a kid? Were you outside all the time? What's, what's your creation story? Well, yeah. So when I was a kid, I was definitely running around the woods a lot. Um, I grew up in Michigan and um, kind of in, this, in, a, in a, kind of in the suburbs, I guess, medium sized town. And, um, you know, used to go fishing and catching frogs and building forts and it was in the Boy Scouts and all that kind of stuff. But then I also really liked science uh, in school. That was my favorite subject. And when I went to college, I, you know, I was into biology, but it was always sort of molecular and genetic and, um, those kinds of things. And then um, after my freshman year, I, I, I had a job working in a, in a lab at a medical school, um, which I should have loved, but I, I hated it. It was just exhausting to, to me to be in a lab all day long. Um, and I just didn't find the work very interesting. So when I went back my sophomore year, I was kind of like, well, I still want to do science, but can I do it where I don't have to work in a, in, a, in a lab all day long, you know, doing microscope stuff. And so that's where I, that's where I started to realize, oh, I could actually do ecology. I could do stuff with animals and stuff with outdoors and actually you know, try to make a difference. And so that's kind of where my career shifted. And you've been doing it ever since. Yeah, trying to. Um, everybody can find you on rollandkays.com and uh, quickly get the idea that you're a pro- prolific producer of content. You have a lot of animals that you've done studies with and a lot of television programs you've been involved with. Um, but what I really wanted to talk about today uh, was coyotes and the things that you're actually finding on the ground. I really love talking to people on the ground because it kind of ties together what you see in headlines and articles, which feel all very anecdotal compared to talking to somebody like you who really has a lay of the land. And, and yeah, I would love to know why there are coyotes in the East in the first place. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of a good question to start with because um, they didn't used to be here and they sort of moved in uh, you know, starting kind of in the 40s or 50s, you know, till around uh, probably by 2000, they'd covered basically the entire East Coast. And uh, we recently went back and, and looked at these records and did a big map that shows the where the coyotes used to be and where they are today. And what we found was that from 
from 1900 back. So going back to, you know, old museum specimens from the 1800s or going back to the fossil record, you find that coyotes were always only in the West. There were no records really from the East and they were, uh, you know, basically in non-forested areas. So they weren't, they weren't in the Pacific Northwest rainforest. They weren't in the great Northern forest or the rainforests of the South or the Eastern Sidious forest. And then starting right around 1900, they started expanding, you know, not only East, but also South. They've gone all the way to Panama now, North, they're in Alaska. They never used to be in Alaska. Now they're in Alaska and then East and covered, you know, sort of the whole East coast. They moved in two main fronts, one uh, along the South and one um, kind of up through the North, uh, through Ontario and into upstate New York and New England. And that Northern front actually moved a lot faster um, than the other fronts, uh, than the Southern front. And also those animals had uh, some wolf genes. So we know that the coyotes that from the Great Lakes area, they hybridized with some wolves. And um, some of those coyotes had a little bit of wolf genes and that kind of has mixed in, especially in the Northeast. Um, and so those animals moved a little bit faster. And you know, what's interesting is, is across the entire East Coast, there were also animals being brought in. And so trappers would bring them in. Sometimes they thought they were fox puppies and they turned out to be coyotes or there were different groups that were bringing coyotes in that were releasing them intentionally or accidentally. Um, but they were always very scattered. And as far as we can tell, none of them really contributed much to the gene pool. It was really this, this sort of advancing front of coyotes that, that was um, this sort of natural colonization of the area. One of the kind of layperson questions I have anyway is I've always heard that wolves and coyotes don't mix. And the only interaction I ever really hear about is how wolves manage, meaning they kill every, I, I've heard, every coyote they see. How does hybridization even work in that situation? I think people would be surprised to hear that. Right. That's a really good question because definitely, you know, wolves and coyotes are enemies for the most part and, um, and they do kill each other. Um, but what, and, and, and so on, on an average day, well, yeah, so sorry, they don't kill each other. The wolves kill the coyotes and on the average day that's going to happen. But what we think happened, um, in, in some cases was when the wolves were, um, uh, really hurting population wise, there were very low numbers. So if you look sort of, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, there were only a few wolves left in the lower 48 states in the Great Lakes area, Wisconsin, Minnesota area. And basically, they, you know, there would have been some situations where uh, a fe- we think it was always a female wolf was coming into heat and there were no male wolves around. And so she kind of had to take the best thing that, that she could get, which would be, you know, in that case, a coyote. So we know that they're different species. They still can hybridize and they can have fertile offspring. Um, but on an, uh, normally they don't do it unless one animal is really rare and one and the other animal is, is more common. Um, and so we don't see it happening anymore today. The wolf population in the Great Lakes area has recovered. Um, and we don't see any evidence of uh, what we call a F1, a first generation hybrids uh, occurring anymore. Um, so that's how we think it happened. Uh, we think it happened with the red wolf in the southeast as well, when the red wolf was, was driven down to the last few animals in, um, in Louisiana and Texas. We think that's when they started hybridizing with coyotes. Uh, we think it happened in the Great Lakes uh, with wolves. And then the other thing that we found evidence for is that as these coyotes advance, and like, you know, let's say the first coyote to cross the St. Lawrence Seaway into northern New York, if that was a female, or whenever the first female got there, she would have had no other coyotes to breed with. And so there was some hybridization with dogs at that point in time. And uh, again, it was probably, a, you know, a, a, it was definitely a female coyote, because we can see it in the genetic patterns with a male, a dog. Um, 
And what happened in both these cases is that these genes get mixed up, uh, but then more coyotes show up and more coyotes show up and more coyotes show up, and they cross back into the coyote populations, and all these genes are mixed up into something something we call a hybrid swarm. What that means is that the, the genes end up getting diluted. So the first animal is you know half wolf and half coyote, but then they breed back into with other coyotes. So then it's 75% coyote, 25% wolf, and then they breed back in with some other coyotes. So what we see in the Northeast today is sort of roughly... 85% coyote and sort of 7 or 8% dog or se- and 7 or 8% wolf. And as you go southeast, you end up with uh, a less wolf, uh, but still some, uh, some dog. So they're mostly coyote. They're still coyotes, right? They're still 80, 90 some percent coyote, but with a, a little bit of these other genes mixed in. Do they have any wolfy attitude? Less skittish? Uh, did anything change in their behavior between them and Western coyotes? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. So we know they're bigger, right? They're, they're larger animals. Mm-hmm. They're sort of, uh, you know, Western coyotes sort of tip, tend to range in the about 25 pounds and Eastern coyotes are tend to be sort of 35 pounds. They max out around 50 pounds. Um, you know, a 40 some pound coyote, 45 pound coyote is really big. Yeah. Um, there are these, these tournaments, people have these hunting tournaments where they try to kill as many coyotes and the heaviest coyote wins and a, usually a 49 or 51 pounder will win that. So that's kind of where they max out um, in the East. And uh, we've actually shown that, that um, some of that is due to wolf genes. So the, some of the wolf genes that are still you know, in the coyote population that seem to be helping them survive are associated with uh, body size, with bone growth, uh, with um, uh, just sort of different things that we know what these genes do from looking at them in dogs or in mouses or in mice or in labs or something. We can, you know, have some idea of the function of those genes, and we can see these eastern coyotes have the wolf version of that gene, and so we think it's helping them be larger. Behavior, we don't know. Um, what we do find is, you know, generally, if you look at conflict between coyotes and people where they're killing uh, pets, um, you know, there's very few attacks on people, but they do happen sometimes. Generally, it's more dogs and cats. That's happening a lot more out west than in the east. So it doesn't seem like it's made them any more dangerous. Um, it's probably had no effect. It's just kind of a lack of evidence more than any actual evidence. Yeah, well, lack of evidence. I mean, it's not for lack of trying. Uh, people like you are out there all the time um, collecting data on this stuff. So if there was a problem that I think is some people believe uh, that there is, that there would be a lot more evidence, I would imagine, because it's not like we're not looking. Yeah, well, well, but right. So it's not, it's not like coyotes never cause problems. You know, some people um, like to paint coyotes like this, this, um, this, you know, harmless creature. And why would you ever kill a coyote? And I think, um, you know, they do, you know, they're in, in the California, they're jumping nine foot high fences and getting to people's backyards and killing their dogs. I mean, that's a real serious thing that happens every month or every week. I see it in the news. I get a little coyote news sticker. Um, you know, and so the, those animals are getting bold, and um, it's interesting I, uh, to think about, you know, how that could happen or how we could manage it. And if you think about a rural coyote, you know, if a rural coyote gets bold, it's going to get shot. And if a coyote living in, you know, Santa Monica gets bold, you can't hunt coyotes in Santa Monica. And so uh, there's not much you can do about it. So I think it might be less of a hybridization thing and more of, of just kind of a, how these populations are evolving to specialize on urban habitats. What other animal in your experience is as prolific and um, as able to adjust and adapt to so many different environments and just be so darn successful as a coyote? 
humans. Well, that's it. <laughs> darn it. That was a layup. Darn it. Accepting <laughs> for humans. Well, <laughs> and I mean, well, the other interesting parallel with humans is we found now that, that humans are actually two or three species hybrids ourselves, right? There's evidence that we have a little bit, little bit of Neanderthal genes in, in our genome. In some populations, there's also a second um, uh, species that was one of our relatives, you know, a long time ago called the Denisovians, that um, there's some DNA in some, uh, uh, some human populations today left over from that. So it's, it's probably the same thing where, you know, as one, one population was getting really, really rare, there was some hybridization, those genes crossed back into the population and they're still there and they're still doing, you know, they're still acting and um, whether they're beneficial or, 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 or problematic, I'm not sure. But it's interesting that, um, you know, humans and, and coyotes are both sort of spreading around the world and, and very adaptable and also uh, it just shows that this this hybridization isn't as uncommon as we used to think it is. So, you know, I don't know. Otherwise, raccoons, rats, you know, those are two other species that seem to do very well. Mosquitoes are my nemesis. Mosquitoes, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's hard to top that. Do you think that this hybridization has anything to do with the idea that you see around the Internet an awful lot, that the more pressure you put on coyote populations, the that that changes their... Uh, breeding cycles that that actually can help their populations grow. Maybe these coyote killing contests or or anything like that. Is there really anything to that? Because if you look at the internet for just an hour, you can see that the jury is still out among the lay people. So you, here's your chance to put that to bed. Yeah, sure. Well, so I this isn't uh, work that I've done myself, but I've read a bunch of the papers that. Um, the I don't think hybridization plays a, a role necessarily because um, uh, this happens in the Western uh, United States as well as in the Eastern United States. Um, and the point is, it's just kind of impossible to get rid of coyotes or even to reduce them, to reduce their numbers in any meaningful way for very long. And so there's been a bunch of different projects where they've they've tried an experiment. They said, all right, let's get rid of as many coyotes as we can. So they hire a bunch of trappers. Sometimes they're even shooting the coyotes out of helicopters to really, really put a lot of pressure on them and really, really try to reduce the population. And what they find is sometimes with, if, you, if you try hard enough, you can, um, uh, you can dampen their population, but just for a little bit, and they bounce right back. And part of it is what you mentioned, that they kind of change their breeding um, and that the, the, the young will breed at a younger age, basically. Uh, and so that 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 ramps up their public their 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 pup production a little bit, but what I think is even more important is just their dispersal ability. There's um, some one recent study found that 40% of the coyotes at any one time running around the landscape are are looking for a territory. They're non-territorial animals that are are trying to find a home, and they can go you know hundreds and hundreds of miles. And so basically, as soon as you remove you know if you have a coyote there. A young coyote can't go in because it's going to get beat up. There's a territory there. As soon as you remove that coyote, there's probably, you know, three or four or five animals that go in and try to take over that territory. And eventually it'll level off and, and one will take that over. But so I think that is, is actually probably a bigger um, factor in this, this sort of impossibility of controlling coyote population by hunting or trapping. Um, but I think there's an important caveat that I'm not, I'm not against coyote hunting and trapping as management because I think it has important, I think it, it has the potential to have important impacts on their behavior, right? Sort of this boldness thing we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. If, um, 
you know, if coyotes don't fear humans as predators, then um, I think they're more likely to come into conflict with us. Whereas if they see us as a risk, they're going to be a lot more shy. They're not going to be sneaking into our backyards. They're going to stay away from us. And I think that has a better sort of long-term coexistence potential between uh, humans and coyotes. And talking about balance, um, you, you were part of a uh, coyote and deer population study, I believe, and, um, yeah. and have weighed in on that topic quite a bit. What do we need to know about, I mean, there are some people who have argued that coyotes coming into an area <clears throat> will affect uh, the deer population negatively. Usually hunters are very upset about that. Uh, I live in Indiana and I've never lived in this state when deer weren't considered a nuisance, a problem, like way, way overpopulated all the time. I've had friends in accidents, hitting them with cars. And it's just a thing around here is that we have deer falling out of the trees. And my thing has always been, well, if we had wolves here, I wonder what it would be like. And, right. <laughs> you know, and if you have wolves, this whole thing, so it's kind of a triangular thing. It's not just the coyote and the deer population study, which you should talk about and, and set that straight uh, about deer populations, but also talk about what if wolves were here just as an exercise. We, we basically, I mean, you kind of just gave away our punchline with your story about Indiana. Um, we, we just, you know, we asked this question of um, if, if coyotes are having a big impact on the deer population, then you would, you ha we had this great experiment that we set up earlier when we talked about, well, the East coast used to not have any coyotes and now they have coyotes. So if coyotes were having a big impact on deer, you would expect to see some big crash in the deer population after coyotes show up. And, you know, maybe it doesn't happen right away because maybe the first coyotes that show up, there's just not enough coyotes. But then, you know, after 10 or 20 years, do you see a crash? And so what we did was we worked with um, data from six different states on over 300 different counties where at each county they'd monitored just how many deer were, were hunted, uh, were killed by hunters. And that there's ways you can adjust that to get that as a measure of deer abundance. And it's not, it's not a perfect measure, but it's a pretty good proxy for deer abundance. As, as the harvest, you know, as the population goes up, there's more deer hunted, um, more deer hunted per year. And like I said, there's some ways you can adjust that for effort. Um, so anyway, we took, the great thing is we had over 300 time series where we know for this county, how many deer were harvested every single year. And then we plotted, well, when did coyotes arrive? And then we looked to see, was there a consistent crash you know, right when coyotes arrived or after 10 years or 20 years or after some, 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 some lag, we, ne we, we didn't find any consistent effect. Um, so sort of our conclusion was at large scales, uh, you know, sort of looking at the whole East Coast, we had uh, data from New York State and Florida. Um, so kind of, uh, you know, across a pretty big swath of area. Um, do, do we see a consistent crash in the deer population after coyotes arrived? And the answer was no. So it doesn't mean that coyotes never have an impact um, at a at a smaller level. You know, in in a few some years on really hard years, they might have have more of a hard time. But I think, like you said, there's just so many deer out there that coyotes are just living off the excess. You know, they're just eating the the you know they're eating they're certainly eating some fawns, they're eating the roadkills, they're eating the injured animals, but they're also eating you know rabbits and mice and fruit uh, insects or they're opportunistic. They eat whatever's uh, the most available. And the other caveat is it looks like coyote populations in the East Coast are still growing. So maybe at some point they'll hit carrying capacity and they'll, they'll have more of an effect on the deer population. But I, I, I wouldn't bet on that because I think they're just too small of a predator. Uh, their body size is just too small. They don't seem to 
um, be consistently hunting deer in groups. I know there's definitely some records. I've seen some videos of, you know, pairs of coyotes taking down a deer, but they're not pack hunters the way wolves are. Um, and so they're just not very effective deer hunters. There's the Yellowstone wolf video and all of the uh, articles and anecdotal evidence <laughs> that has been produced uh, since wolves were reintroduced there and how things had gotten really out of control in the absence of wolves. Um, and we didn't really know that until the wolves were put back, how out of control right. things were, out of balance. And mountain lands moved back up uh, a little bit in altitude and certainly coyotes were dispersed. Can you talk about what what would the effect be, say, if um, we had a viable population of uh, the wolves that we barely have hanging on in the east? Um, not that it might happen. It's very unlikely that it does. But what if what if wolves were back in the picture? What would happen in the east? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I, I do not think that we will never have wolves in the east. Um, I think when you look at wolf recovery in, in Germany and Denmark, and true, yep. they can have wolf, breeding wolves in Denmark for God's sake. We can have them in in, uh, in the East, eastern United States. But I agree. Um, beyond that, is let's say let's say we had a you know a, a proper full size wolf. You know they they would definitely reduce the the coyote population. They can do what human hunters can't do um, for two reasons. One is uh, they're very effective at, at you know killing the coyotes. Uh, they have this, what we call this direct effect at removing animals from the population. But then more importantly, they have this second indirect effect, which is the fear. Um, and so coyotes uh, fear wolves and they totally change the way they use the landscape because they're always worried about getting killed by a wolf. And they, they don't really have that fear as much with humans. And that's kind of why we run into this problem with some of the bold coyotes. But so, you know, I think they would, dra they would um, dramatically reduce the coyote population in the areas where the wolves lived. You know, now what would be interesting is what would happen in the more developed areas where you, know, you have coyotes living in suburbia, where you would never have wolves, and um, so that probably wouldn't make much of a change there. But but in the areas where you do have wolves, um, I think it would uh, it would have a significant impact on the coyote population. It's ironic that uh, humans think they can manage the deer population, and we can't. Obviously, there's a lot of empirical evidence on that as well, <laughs> and. Uh, by hunting and and the wolf populations, and you were pretty adamant earlier saying that there's just no way we can really truly knock those populations down on a big scale, maybe on a local scale, somewhat. But there's always something there to fill back in. But as soon as I'm just always been fascinated by when you just add wolves, that one ingredient affects so many different things. And and then you were pretty adamant about wolves will control the population. And I would just I always like to rib the hunters the really hardcore ones as much as i can if you guys are so worried about the coyotes why don't you just let us reintroduce wolves and they just go crazy yeah. when you say that i mean they just lose their minds because there's no real you know it, it, they are true believers when it comes to their ability to knock the populations down and keep them in check i'm i'm a, I'm a deer hunter and and uh um you know i think they deer deer hunters in general have gotten used to there being a lot of deer but um they're yeah they're they're not uh, generally controlling the numbers to the extent and we're having uh, we 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 run camera traps all over the place here in North Carolina and and we get I think three quarters of our pictures are deer they're just everywhere there's so many of them yeah you know humans are are doing somebody but just, there's not enough hunting you know even here in North Carolina we have really uh, lax regulations about how many deer you can hunt because they want people to hunt more deer um, and it's just uh, it doesn't seem to be making the difference well that's a good point I mean some of it could just be 
what's happening to hunting. I mean, we, we would have to somehow mirror the best we could what wolves were doing. And if we're not able to do that and the regulations are lax, uh, there's just not enough people out there hunting. It's not a common thing for conservationists to hear because we always assume that everybody's out there with AKs and everything else and doing crazy, crazy stuff. And uh, you're saying that's not true. Well, I mean, the hunter population, uh, the, the sort of number of people that hunting is, is slowly going down uh, in, uh, in the U.S. So there, is, there does seem to be less hunting. Um, there's still a lot, right? There's, there's more people, there's more hunters in the United States than sort of the, the 19 largest combined armies in the world. So, um, you know, hunting has a big impact uh, overall. We have a relatively small hunting season. I think we should have an open season, a, a longer season. Um, not sorry, not an open season, but I think season should be longer um, because the other thing is I think you don't have the same uh, fear effects with humans as hunters, mm-hmm. right? Like I mentioned, predators like wolves, they have this direct impact of re- removing the animals from the population, but then they also have what we call an indirect effect, which is a fear effect where, it, you know, the animals, uh, the prey avoid and are, are afraid of, of, of predators. And, um, you know, I don't think that's happening with humans. They're, they see so many humans that aren't killing them that most of these animals are completely unafraid and you know they'll feed in your backyard they you see them in the park they don't run away uh, they totally don't see humans as threats which um i think is partly because we have this limited hunting season that's only for a few months you look at uh, i've done some work over in europe where they hunt more year-round and um the animals are much more shy about um about humans uh, because of uh of, I, I think because of that more year-round effect um, the other thing that that I would would that I think would be great is if we'd allow people to sell wild game meat um, and make some money off of it. That's another thing you can do in most of the rest of the world that has good management plans. You can sell game meat to restaurants in Europe. You can sell kangaroos when you hunt them in in, in Australia and um, in the U.S. You're not allowed to do that. And I think you know the whole eat local movement could really benefit from you know, hunting this, this native local uh, meat that's overabundant. Uh, you know, I, I feel like there's, that's kind of an obvious solution. And there's, there's just some, some strange barriers that are, that are put up to that, that um, I think are a shame. Well, if uh, bioregionalism really does take off um, and economies uh, become more regional and local and, and we're all supposed to get a, a lot of our sustenance from very close to home, maybe that'll change. Uh, because yeah, well, certainly you know people are doing that themselves if they're hunters. Um, yeah. You know that's big, and a lot of people are getting into hunting because of that very reason. But you know, there's a lot of people that are never going to hunt, but but might you know buy some uh, venison um, mm-hmm. if it was available, and that that would have the the extra you know motivation to hunt more deer. Well, if we can, let's move to um, something near and dear to my heart: uh, tracking and. All your work in tracking, I'm on your tracking page. Everybody can check it out at rollingcase.com under tracking. I have a million questions, but I'm going to start with the big headline that you tracked seeds being moved around by rodents. I mean, like, that's hardcore tracking, man. Yeah, that was great. That was super fun. That was a totally one of those projects where you go in there trying to test one question and you come out having answered a totally different question that you didn't even know about. I imagine. I mean, it's, that's got to be, it's really getting down to a level. We used to do um, service projects in the Sky Island region and um, to pay people back for their volunteer work, we would teach them 
uh, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, uh, with people like Sue Morris would come in and help teach them tracking and, and just teach them how to look at the land in a different way than just being peak baggers, which a lot of our people typically were. They were just like mountain climbers and, and they would just blow past all this stuff where in this scenario, we would take three or four hours or more just to go a mile. And uh, Sue would be pulling us off trail like crazy, showing us little bear hairs and the bark and everything else. So there's that yeah. kind of tracking that I think most people are, if they know anything about it, that's the kind of stuff they're familiar with. But this, this high tech stuff that you're doing, talk a little bit about that. Like you're doing some, some different things than what I think people think of when they think of tracking the traditional way. Yeah, well, sure. So, um, you know, tracking the sort of footprint tracking is, um, is useful. And, and it's one of my favorite things to do, uh, you know, jump on animals footprints in the snow and see what they're doing. You can learn so much about them, but, uh, you don't always have snow and there's, 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 uh, it, sometimes you need a little technology to help see where an animal's going. And so that's something we've been doing a lot of work with over the years using different kinds of, of electronic tracking tags. Um, you know, these days they're mostly GPS, but sometimes they're also the, what I call the old school pinger tags, the VHF tags where, you know, there's this radio ping that's going out and you wave your antenna around and you can find the, um, find where the, where the radio transmitter is by pointing your antenna in that direction. And so um, those tags are still useful for a lot of projects like the seed tracking we did. The seeds were so small, we had to have a really small tag and the GPS was too small for that. Or it was too big for that. So we used uh, um, radios for that. Um, but you know the, the 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 GPS tags have really revolutionized how we uh, follow animals, how we understand where animals go, uh, how they spend their time, where they migrate to, and uh, you know especially these days a lot of these questions are how are they dealing with humans on the landscapes? Um, and so that the tags now are you know they're getting small, they're lightweight, so they don't um, have much of an impact on the animals. They can record these GPS fixes sometimes every every few minutes or even every few seconds, um, and then uh, send the data back to you so you can um, follow these animal movements all over the place and really, um, you know, see exactly what they're doing. This increased temporal resolution. So let's say we used to get a fix maybe a couple times a day or maybe a couple times a week, and you would kind of try to guess where the animal was in between uh, those points. Now you get a point every few minutes you can see exactly where they're going. And we, we had one project where we were working on urban fishers and we could tell exactly where they crossed the road because um, it was such good resolution. We went there and found out, oh, they're using these little drainage culverts to get under the road. These are actually really, really important for these animals to be able to move from one forest fragment to another forest fragment without getting hit by the cars. And we would have never known that if we had a lower resolution uh, type of data. When you were talking in uh, your video about the foxes, which I highly recommend everybody check out, super, super interesting. The, the big burrow with all the different holes, all the different things around that yeah. tree. You, and you mentioned that you had gotten a, a ping like a few minutes after you left your camera trap. We used to have camera traps that were really, really remedial, extraordinarily expensive for the time back in the 90s. And you would have to come in and, and just pick them up and then go develop the film. No, and then you would find out what was what was there. So like a lot of time had passed. You got to let time pass to let the, the you know, trap fill up with pictures. Tell me what that technology is like today, because I think you guys are really spoiled now. Well, yeah. So certainly we're all using digital cameras now. Um, and so that's a huge difference. That's the biggest difference. We're not you know, reliant on 36 exposures on a roll of film. We can leave the cameras out longer. We can get more pictures. We can get video. Um, 
Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so that's really great. The, the live data, um, is possible. It's expensive. And, um, for the science that I do, it's not usually that important. So I have a couple live cameras I use sort of for these sort of educational outreach types of projects, or I'll use them to sort of monitor a trap or something where I really need the live data. But um, you know, basically each one of those is a cell phone uh, texting plan. And so, you know, we, we have a project, uh, we just picked up 50 cameras at a site that we, that we set out a month before, you know, I can't afford to pay 50 cell phone bills just to get the live data when yeah. it's not that hard to just go pick them up and get the memory card off, uh, you know, out of the camera. So most of the work we do now with cameras is, uh, they just save it to the memory card. We put the camera out, we come back a month later, check on it and get the data back. And that's, that's fine for the types of projects that we're doing, you know, the live, the, the, the people who are really pushing on the live cameras are uh, usually around security. So where they're looking for poachers and they need to know, you know, the, the Rangers need to know right now that there's a poacher out in this particular quadrant. Um, and so that's where they really need the live, uh, the live data. The uh, running around the woods part is the most important part. Um, right. So I, I like to have that as still part of the job that I got to go put the cameras out or go pick them up and, um, you know, I find a lot of times just having having that that firsthand experience on the landscape really helps me make sense of the data when it comes back later. When I've been to a site, I have a better feel for what's there, for what might be impacting, you know, what the landscape's like, what the surrounding area is like. A lot of our work now with cameras has been with as a citizen science project where we have volunteers that help us run the cameras, which is great because now we can run cameras in thousands of places without traveling there myself. Um, and it's great because it engages the public in the research. They get to see the animals. They actually become advocates for the local wildlife, which is which is really super. Um, but but then I end up with this giant data set of places that I've never been, so I don't have quite yeah. the same same insight. I have to use uh, you know remote sensing or some other data to try to uh, ask the research questions with it. But what's that li- what's that feel like though to see something light up like a Christmas tree? I mean, there are some things, you know, great big data set, but there's got to be times in the past where you were like, I wish I had that big data set. I wish we had a citizen project that, you know, would really light this thing up. Was that emotional for you? Was that a really big deal? Like, look at this. Look how we can see. Are you seeing other things that you weren't able to see um, in finer detail? I would imagine you were. Well, yeah. I mean, we were able to see it across the state. So we, we have a project now funded by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission uh, it's called Candid Critters, and uh, we have volunteers all across the state. We've we've had cameras run now in in uh, all hundred counties of the state, um, and so we're we're able to to get this statewide um, sort of uh, you know very detailed look at what's going on with the wildlife populations, where the animals live, um, you know what their sort of relative abundances are, and now we're starting to you know analyze the data and ask some questions about well, what what are the factors that that are impacting the populations. Uh, how important is development for certain species, um, uh, all sorts of different things. So um, it's uh, um, it's it's definitely a goldmine, but it's also sort of you know these sort of these big data projects have these these trade-offs where um, it lets you see things in much much better resolution, but at the same time then you've got to um, you know be ready to handle massive data sets and have this sort of analytical pipeline set up to. Um, to, you know, make the discoveries uh, using the, the long series of zeros and ones. And What's an example uh, of the results of something like that? So we had, we had one actually that was um, uh, interesting where we, we worked with volunteers to um, survey 32 parks across six states. Uh, so these were state parks, they were game lands, they were nature preserves, all sorts of different places. Um, 
And we set up the project to, we wanted to evaluate what's the impact of hunting and hiking on wildlife populations. There had been some studies that had showed that, that, that hiking was really negative for wildlife populations. And I, I, in, from one study out in California, and that really surprised me and didn't kind of jive with what I, I've seen out here in the East. And so we set up this project where we had two parks that were near each other. So they were the same sort of elevation, same forest type, one that, that was hunted, one that was not hunted. And then at each of those, we set cam- we had volunteers set cameras on the trail, near the trail, and far from the trail. We got all the data back. We, the volunteers looked at all the pictures. They uploaded the pictures. They identified the pictures. We went back and verified all the picture IDs. We got uh, all the data into one big data set and then um, ran a bunch of statistical models to evaluate, all right, you know, what's the impact of, of habitat type versus hunting versus hiking on uh, all these different species. We had 12 different species. And we found overall um, habitat was much more important than um, hunting or hiking on wildlife populations. Hiking generally had relatively minor effects. Some species, it didn't matter at all. Some species had a little bit of a negative effect. I think red foxes were actually attracted to the, the, the highly hiked trails for some reason. Um, and then hunting, you know, it did have uh, somewhat of an impact um, on uh, the most hunted species like deer, squirrels, and raccoons, which uh, you would hope <laughs> you would see some of that because that's, you know, they're removing the animals from the population. So indeed, we did see a decline in those numbers. Um, and interesting, coming back to our, our coyote discussion, we actually found more coyote activity in the areas that were hunted than the areas that were not hunted, um, which we don't know for sure why, but I think it's what I was talking about earlier about how when you remove one coyote, five come in to try to take its place. Um, and so I think that was just kind of this, it was creating this this magnet for all the young dispersing coyotes to come in and uh, and you ended up with actually more coyotes in the areas that were getting hunted. That's crazy. Man, I bet you have a lot of stories. You're fun to sit around a campfire with it, I bet. <laughs> well, thanks. I, uh, yeah, I like sitting around campfires. So I like uh, hearing other people's stories too. In fact, I have, um, I'd like to put in a plug for my podcast, which is kind yes, of like please do. around the campfires. Um, I have a new podcast com- coming out. Um, I, I think it's going to, gonna, the first episode is going to come out on, uh, on June 11th. It's called Wild Animals. And it's stories, uh, it's crazy stories about animals told by the people who study them. So I, I interview different biologists who have done a specific project where they've tracked an animal. And we talk about a specific animal, like Cluey the wolf. Uh, and, 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 and the biologist, in this case, Mark Hebelwhite, tells the story of Cluey, uh, you know, how he first met him and what the tracking data showed. And then talk about the rest of the research and, you know, some of the other animals too, but kind of use that, use the arc of the story of the animal. So we've got mountain lions in Hollywood and um, pythons in the Everglades and elephants in Africa, all kinds of interesting stories coming up for that. And so uh, that's you know, also part of what I like to do is try to use you know, not only the data that we get to help inform conservation, but also some of the stories that come out of, of, of running around the woods and following animals and try to use that to help get people you know, excited and, 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 um, and uh, passionate about the animals as well. Absolutely crucial. In my opinion, <laughs> you're doing an, an incredible service there because we don't have enough stories. We have a lot of headlines. You know, there, there's just a really big hole. And I will absolutely be your first subscriber. And go to rollingks.com, uh, K-A-Y-S.com. And I'm sure that you have some way for people to follow you all over the place. I know you have a Twitter account where we can see, you mentioned something about foxes. Talk about that. Yeah, well, yeah. So, so I've got a, uh, I've got Roland K's on Twitter, uh, and then we also the the fox video you mentioned a few years ago. 
we, we stumbled onto this fox den and, and followed it with a camera trap. And we followed it every year, and we've actually upgraded the camera trap. So we get really nice uh, video now. And uh, every year, the red foxes have come back. And so you get to see the parents sort of hanging around. And then you get to see that for the first time, the fox puppies come up and sort of explore their world. And they're just these cute little fuzzballs. It's incredible. And the, you get to see the fox parents bringing in, you know, rabbits and squirrels and duck. You know, someone brought in a goose head the other day. Um, so you can see all the different food they're bringing in. And then there's also a bin, you know, pretty much every year, a coyote lurking around and trying to get into the den. He's too big or she's too big to get into the den. Um, but she did steal some food from the foxes this year earlier. So um, we, we uh, uh, update it pretty regularly. So you, right, right now there's three puppies playing around. They're getting pretty feisty. They're, uh, I haven't seen the coyote in a little while, so maybe the coyote's uh, moved on. But uh, we're waiting to, to watch the puppies grow up. And eventually they'll leave. All of a sudden one day they'll, uh, they'll stop coming by. But until then, or you can go back and look at the old pictures, it's, um, that Twitter account's called Camtrap Live. I see one here. I've just been looking at this fox trying to figure out what's going on. That is awesome. Cam Trap Live and also Roland K's. Those are both Twitter accounts you guys need to follow. Yep. Um, I love live camera stuff. I love seeing this. Um, is we'll Talk really quickly about the, the care and the precaution that you guys take to make sure that people don't know locations of these things. So for sure, the fox den. I don't. I don't uh, um, give away the exact location of the fox den. I mean, it's in Raleigh, North Carolina, but whatever. Um, but actually, we we do give away a lot of our camera trap data. We make it publicly available because we want to encourage other scientists to use it uh, and to make their to answer their own questions or even you know school kids. We do. We we actually have projects where school kids help us run cameras, and so we like to make the data available to them. Endangered species are protected. So if you know we we have some cameras running in India right now, for example, and if we get a if we get a tiger picture in India, uh, we don't share that location uh, of that exactly where that tiger was. But for other species, I mean, you know, if you want to hunt a deer, you don't need my data from two years ago to tell you where a deer right. was. Right, right. <laughs> they're 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 all over the place. So we, we actually uh, are really pro open data and really sort of um, data sharing and want to encourage. Encourage that to you know be able to do better um, research and be make better conservation decisions. So allay everyone's fears because it seems like it's not a big deal to you, and you would know because you have the data. You know what goes on out there. Um, is that just much ado about nothing, or have there been instances where ne'er do wells have used any data that's out there to track down animals in order to try to grab them? Yeah, interesting. So. So there's kind of two sides. There's the camera side and there's the, the animal tracking side. From the camera side, I, I really don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's ever, I've, I've never heard of it actually happening. I think, you know, the data tends to be available months or years later. And so by then, you know, the animals are, are moving on. And, um, you know, people on the ground who are looking to hunt something are going to be looking for footprints or, you know, something a, lo a lot more immediate or running their own cameras and getting the information immediately. So I really don't, don't think it's ever happened and don't think it's a, a big risk. Um, there, there is, a, you know, the, the tracking data is more live. And so that's where it could potentially, you know, if someone wanted to hunt a, a, a poach a rhino and there was a tracking tag on it, they could potentially use that to, to find them directly. You know, biologists know that, and so they're they're generally pretty smart about about doing that. They have to be careful. I know uh, the folks out in Yellowstone had to um, sort of be, people were trying to use the radio frequencies to find the wolves to take pictures of them, and um, they just didn't 
really want people, you know, harassing the wolves that much. And so they were trying to find ways to, to sort of scramble the code so they wouldn't be able to do that. Um, and so we're sensitive about the live data. We, we give some live data away. So we have a, uh, we have an app called Animal Tracker where you can follow uh, animals in real time. So there's a bald eagle that we've been following uh, now for four years that migrates all over the place. It's sitting right now on the coast of Lake Erie um, and um, it moves between South Carolina and Montreal. And it's super fun to follow that animal every day and see where it is. I don't really have much of a concern that someone's going to go shoot that bald eagle, right? Yeah. But if it was something that was huntable, uh, then I would be uh, more reluctant about making those data public. So we, we think a lot about it. We try to be careful about it. What's fascinating to me here is it feels like in talking to you, you're plugged into, you keep mentioning these trackers and these data feeds and these things that you follow and you know when an eagle that you're tracking on this app has landed in some weird place that nobody expected or whatever. Can people... Can you give us a little instruction on how, I mean, we can start following the uh, cam trap live stuff, but what other ways yep. could we get integrated with the kind of work that you do and just feel like we know more about what's going on on the ground in our favorite places? Well, if you're in North Carolina, you can run a camera trap with us as part of the Candor Critters Project. We, uh, we loan them out through local library systems. And so you can, um, once you take our, our online training, you qualify to check out a camera trap and you can run it and then you get to see the animals and then send us all the pictures and we get to use the data. And then the sort of engagement side on the, uh, mentioned the podcast, the, the camera trap feed, and then the, the animal tracker app is the other uh, kind of main engagement piece where we're, we have different animals around the world. I mean, and this isn't, you know, most of these data are not mine. There are other biologists doing studies on different animals that have uh, made the data available through this animal tracker app. It's sort of like getting a first person or, or VIP backstage pass feel because I think a lot of people like me all too frequently get our stuff from those months or even year old reports that somebody does an article on and it's neat to read about and everything. But I think there's people like me out there who would really love to be keyed in on this stuff a little bit more, like a little closer to when it's happening and feel more on the ground. So those are really cool tools and thank you for sharing them. Once you kind of get invested in one of these animals, you really want to see, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And oh my God, what's he doing way up in Montreal? If you can have a net like you're describing where you can put together data, put together stories from different sources, it feels a little bit more organic that way. So it's very- Yeah, very well, that's what we're, you know, we're trying to find ways to, to tell the stories of these animals because there's so much interesting, so many interesting things happening, um, you know, so much drama in the, in the lives of these animals and we're- we're able to, to, you know, get at it like never before was this, to get those stories out there. So it's not just us geeky uh, data nerds who get to see it, but, but, but share it with the broader world as well. Well, you guys can get keyed in here at rollandkays.com. That's a good starting point. And I think everything else we talked about kind of branches off of your site. Roland, thank you so much. This has been really, really fun. I kind of tend to geek out on all of this stuff, but so do our listeners because there's more and more of them and they seem to like what we're doing here. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Well, thanks for the opportunity to, to, uh, to uh, chat. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.